If you will, let's turn our Bibles together to Ephesians chapter 6. We are <clears throat> nearing the end of our exposition, our verse-by-verse teaching of Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. It's kind of hard to believe that we are near the end, but we find ourselves now in this final major section of Paul's letter to this church, an important church, a strategic church, a church that Paul had invested much energy into, that it might be strong and that it might remain strong. He had spent a great deal of personal time and energy seeking the formation of this church. Even now, as he was in chains in prison for the sake of the gospel, he writes to it. He, of course, would leave his great protege, Timothy, who would watch over it. And all of this, and our understanding of Jesus' word to the church in Ephesus several decades later, in the book of Revelation from John's pen, much attention was given to this church. Jesus loved this church. And that may seem like a cliched thought. If I were to ask you if Jesus loves you, you learned that when you were a kid, and you have to answer in the affirmative. If I were to ask you if Jesus loves our church, our church family, I would suspect that theologically you would assent to that, you would agree with that. I wonder, however, if we actually, when it really comes down to it, existentially down deep in our souls, I wonder if we actually really believe that. This passage that we will read together in just a moment calls into question whether or not we love God and whether or not we believe that He loves us. Both thoughts are of significance and of ultra-importance as we read this final section of Ephesians chapter 6. In many ways, Paul's capstone to the letter, his final word. And under inspiration of the Spirit, after Paul has written in great detail of the privileges that these Ephesian believers had, and then the implications of how they were to live for him as worshipers, restored image bearers, Paul finishes with a final thought. He wants to draw their attention to one final thing. And as I have suggested, these twin thoughts are the thing that come out, or the things that come out in this final section. That we are to love God until the end, trusting with all that we have that He loves us. And so I say to you, as the people of God, 20 centuries later, that we are to hold fast and love God until the end. And this is only possible because He has first loved us. Let's read this section together. We'll actually read verse 10 down through verse 20. This is the word of the Lord. Finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. May God bless to us the reading of His holy word. When I was a kid, there was a really dear family in our church. Their names were Gene, that was the husband, and Kay Slimp. Gene Slimp was a really tall old man who looked like he was 150. Kay, his wife, was a really tiny short lady, and she looked like she was 90. So a lot younger than him, but still old. And I knew them my whole life. They did everything at our church. He was one of the custodians. I don't know all that she did. She did a lot. They always locked up afterward. They were always the first ones there and the last ones there. Uh, they were the, the kind of people that you trust to help get things done. They just did. And they did it silently. They were never out front. They never did things like that. Um, Gene Slimp barely talked. If you really engaged him and asked a question, occasionally he would utter a few words. But he was probably the most humble man that I ever knew in my life. The story went that he was converted as an adult, that he had been a pretty wild guy before that. And after he came to Christ, he just dedicated his life to serving people. And that's what he did. The best thing they did, more than cleaning toilets and locking up doors and that kind of stuff, the best thing that they did is that they prayed. And they prayed all of the time. I'm not sure how we knew that, but that was just kind of their uh, aura. That was what people knew about them. Somehow, over time, over the decades of the church, uh, this came out about them. And I remember occasionally when we would have testimony times, we do that here occasionally, uh, Case Limp, the little short older lady, would get up and she would talk. And I remember as a kid, she would talk about how she would pray for the church and one of the things that she would pray is that the devil would be kept at bay, that all of his forces would not overcome us, and that we would be faithful to God. And I remember as a kid being sort of scared of that, because there was all this talk of devils and demons, and it kind of freaked me out. When I was a teenager and became more serious about my faith, I didn't have a lot of discernment yet. I was reading the Bible, and it was growing, but... I tended to read other Christian books to try to learn and grow. And one of the books I picked up when I was probably 16 or so was a book called This Present Darkness. You guys remember this from back in the 80s and 90s, Frank Peretti? I think there was a series of these. There was one called Piercing the Darkness, I think. And it was about spiritual warfare. And I remember reading that book, and it just scared me to death. Like, 
you know, I would watch horror movies. That was kind of a big thing. I had three brothers, and that's what we would do after mom and dad went to bed. But I remember reading this book about demons and spiritual warfare and Christians overcoming the devil and, and being more scared than I ever was when I watched some scary movie. And looking back as a child, there was this healthy sort of fear put in me of, of things I couldn't see. But then I became an adult, and the, the pressures and normal routines of life took over for me. And I'm being honest, and I think all of us can say, and it's certainly biblical, that, that we do fight things that we see, right? We, we fight our own flesh. We see that. We, we live there every day. Sometimes we, we fight other people, people who are opposed to godly things, to Christianity, to the faith. But if we're not careful, we can lose sight of the fact that, that our greatest battle is against things that we don't see. Not to confess that as I look at this passage, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, it's, it's a little kooky, seemingly. Like, if the world were to come in today, people who are opposed to Christianity and were to sit down and listen to us go through this text in detail, they would think we were just a little bit kooky. What's all this talk of demons and devils? Those are for movies about exorcisms. It's all fantasy. But God in His infinite wisdom left for us a record, not just here in Ephesians chapter 6, but in other portions of the Scripture to show us that this battle is all too real, that our faith is under threat, that we face a daily barrage, yes, from our flesh, and yes, from those that are opposed to the things of God, but but even perhaps more so against things that we cannot see. I think sometimes we tend to whitewash Satan and his intentions. We tend to romanticize the eternal struggle between righteousness and unrighteousness, but if we're being honest, Satan is the most treacherous being that has or ever will exist, and he is hell-bent, pun intended, on dragging us there with him and opposing all things that are godly, for he seethes with hatred against God and against the people of God. He hates God and he, thinks, he hates all things that are good and godly. When we place our faith in Jesus and follow Jesus as Christians, we become targets, targets of the evil one that he would seek to pick off and destroy. For in doing so, he wants to hurt God and discredit the gospel. And yet it is interesting as we come to the end of this letter to the church in Ephesus, after Paul has spent great detail in chapters 1 through 3 recording the privileges that flow to the saints of God, the chosen of God. And then he talks about the implications of how we are to live as those chosen of God. He ends with these words. And that's how he starts verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord. And as we will talk about starting next week, he says to stand therefore. 
Paul cares greatly that these people don't lose their faith. I mentioned to you earlier in the opening hymn this morning that we sang, The Mighty Fortress is Our God. Martin Luther was acutely aware of what it cost him to stand for the gospel. Much of Luther's writing work was done when he was hiding out so that he would not be arrested and killed. Luther, of course, would stand before the Holy Roman Emperor and the leaders of the church and be called into question for this new teaching that we are justified by grace alone through faith alone, which was no new teaching at all. It was a rediscovery of the truth of the gospel in the Scriptures. But Luther stood against the forces of his day. Guys disguised as light when in fact it was darkness. And traditionally, if you know the story of Luther, when his gospel was called into question, he stood firm and he said, here I stand, so help me God, I can do no other. He stood whenever his life was in peril. And he wrote this hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, as a testimony of his faith in the one who would sustain him and those whom he led. And so, to today, we are always to be reforming, recognizing our tendency to stray from the gospel, to stray from the faith. For we are, as I've already said, under constant barrage. And so one of the great hallmarks of the Protestant Reformation under Luther's leadership and those others who led with him was that we were to persevere in the faith. Those who had been separated from God and would never would have chosen Him, God brought to Himself, making them His own. But these who had been made gods, those who had been renewed to Him, those who had been reconciled to Him as former enemies, were to persevere in the faith. And just as in Luther's day, the cosmic powers of evil are arrayed against the church. It is not fashionable to hold to such things. And yet I say to you, as the collective people of God and as individual worshipers of God, we must persevere unto the end. And as we will learn over the next few weeks as we go through this final message from Paul, we are to demonstrate faithfully, perseveringly, our love for God, the one who loved us first. So, today in verse 10, we must fight by faith, trusting the Lord who has made us His own. Paul ends this section as we read just a few moments ago in verse 20 reminding us that he was in prison. He had laid his life on the line for the cause of the gospel. And so Paul did not just write in a vacuum. Paul wrote as a man who was soon to lay it all down. Traditionally, Paul was beheaded for his faith after he would not recant. Of course, traditionally, other than Judas, all the apostles would lay their lives down in various ways, for the sake of the gospel, many of them tortured beyond compare. 
And Paul, in light of what was facing him, and knowing what it would cost the Ephesians to stand strong in an evil culture, caused them to fight by faith, trusting the one who had made them his own. And so he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. I'm going to put the entire outline for today in front of you so you understand the structure of the passage. So we must fight by faith, trusting the Lord who has made us his own, verse 10, because, verse 11, our enemy is dangerous. But even still, we aren't left to fight alone. And our real battle, verse 12, is against unseen, dangerous, and relentless forces. Knowing this, we will face many trials, but we must persevere by faith in our faithful Lord. So Paul says in verse 10 that this church is to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Let's look together in Luke chapter 22. This is Luke 2 on the screen, but it's Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 46. passage is familiar to you. Jesus has had the final supper with his disciples and has gone toward Gethsemane now. Along the way, he says to Peter, he calls Simon here in Luke 22, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. They might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Down in verse 39, he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. The disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him and being in an agony. He prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Of course, we know the rest of the story. The disciples fled from him. Peter would deny him just as Jesus said he would. If you're Peter here and Jesus is walking along, who you believe to be the Son of God who knows all things, and he says to you that Satan wants to have you. He wants to sift you like wheat. How do you respond to that? Are you sure Satan wants to have me? Peter was full of bluster pretty often, and so his response was one of pride. I think there was some bravado here. I think he really did love Jesus. He, he loved the idea of a coming kingdom in which he could be with Jesus. So out of bravado and out of pride, he says, not me, I won't deny you. And then Jesus evidences for him, he shows him how he could sustain such a claim. For Jesus himself, who was the Son of God and lacked no strength, who could have done anything at any time, himself prayed. 
In fact, this is one of the great themes of Luke's gospel. You see Jesus praying all the time, sometimes all night long. It's a, it's a strange thing. Why would God need strength? But it evidences for us that He wasn't only God, He was, he was also fully man. Two natures united in one person, fully God, fully man. And as the second Adam, who was sent to keep all of the laws that we could not and would not keep, he felt all of our weaknesses, and he prayed that God would strengthen him, and of course, most especially for what was coming in a few short hours, when he would be mocked, flogged, tried, falsely accused, nailed to a cross, suspended between God and man for crimes he did not commit. In fact, for being honest, for the crimes that we did and would commit. And because he bore the sins of humanity, his own father turned his back on him. He, he knew the agony that was to come, and so he agonized in prayer, and God strengthened him. And yet the disciples, who were far weaker than him, fell asleep, according to Luke for sorrow. But because of what Jesus evidenced for us by His own life, and because of what He accomplished on the cross, we have every reason to trust Him. So let's turn together to Hebrews chapter 2. The writer of Hebrews calls these Jewish Christians to persevere in their faith. They are under threat just like Paul knew what happened to the church in Ephesus, as we saw a few times as we worked through Ephesians in Acts chapter 20, Paul meets with the Ephesian elders and tells them that, that wolves will come into the Ephesian church trying to devour God's sheep. This wasn't just true in Ephesus, it was true all around the world. And the writer of the book of Hebrews writes to these Hebrew Christians to persevere in the faith, but by what means? Verse 14 of Hebrews 2, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He bore God's wrath, in other words. For because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Because Jesus took on flesh and became the Son of Man, the second Adam, our representative, the Creator, the author of a new race, He understands all of our limitations but because He conquered sin and death through the cross and the empty tomb, He is now at the right hand of the Father and He intercedes for us and, and pleads His merits on our behalf. The same thought comes out in chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you turn with me back to Ephesians chapter 6, armed with this knowledge, this call to be strong is not a call to muscle it out on our own. Jesus, who by His own example evidenced for us, who demonstrated for us what it was like to persevere in faith. And again, that's a shocking thing to think that the Son of God had to persevere in faith, but He did by depending on His Father. And now He is before the Father, pleading His merits on our behalf. We who have no merits, we who are not strong, have a strong Savior who is full of grace. And He's praying for us now. Which means that when we face the day of evil, we'll talk more about that in a few moments, when we face the day of evil, or perhaps better said, days that are evil, we are not alone and we are called to be strong. This reminds us of what we saw at the end of Ephesians chapter 1. Let's turn back there and remind ourselves that Paul says, for this reason, Ephesians 1.15, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for your remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him in the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His, under Christ's feet, and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. This passage, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23, suggests to us that the gospel, the good news of salvation in Christ Jesus, is not just for our conversion, our initial salvation, but the gospel is for all of life. The gospel is for every day. The good news for us is that we have passed from death to life. From the kingdom of Satan, which Paul talks about at the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2, to the kingdom of God. We formerly were sons of disobedience, now we are sons and daughters of the one true God. And Jesus, under whose feet God has placed all things, is our Lord. He is our head. And the same power that God invested to conquer sin and death through Jesus is leveraged on our behalf every single day to sustain us. So to put it very simply, Jesus died on the cross and rose from the grave to conquer sin and death that we might be rescued we might pass from death to life. But for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus, who are saved, 
who are sons and daughters of God, who are in God's kingdom now, who are God's children now, we are not left alone. And Paul prays here at the, Ephesian, at the end of Ephesians chapter 1, these Ephesian believers will know that the gospel is for their faith every day. The good news that Jesus has conquered is conquering and one day will fully conquer. We are not on our own. And so, brothers and sisters, as Paul suggests in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, we are to be strong, but not in our own strength, but in the strength of the Lord and the strength of His might. In Romans, Paul says, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's what Paul's saying in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That sounds a little nebulous, though, doesn't it? What does that mean, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, I would suggest first that, that we've been made Jesus' own. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 15. He is the vine. We are the branches. We, we draw all of our sustaining strength from Him. And yet we are to walk in the Spirit, according to Paul and Galatians chapter 5, we who belong to Jesus must walk in faith. Practically speaking, we do this by, by knowing the truth, by reading the Bible, by knowing the privileges that are ours, by knowing the dangers that are arrayed against us, and then by talking to Him all the time, not ceasing in prayer to rehearse the truth back to Him, trusting Him. And so when Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, to be strong in the Lord, basically what he's saying is, is appropriate what is already yours. Take advantage of the privileges that have been given to you. And practically then he talks in verse 11 about putting on the whole armor of God. So I'll put the outline back in front of you. We must fight by faith, trusting the Lord who has made us His own, knowing that our enemy is dangerous and that we aren't left to fight alone, verse 11. We are to put on the whole armor of God. Now, next week we'll get into more detail as to what these individual pieces of armor actually are. But the purpose of this is that we will be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And again, this is where things get a little spooky and creepy. Our real battle is against the devil and all of his forces. And if we're being honest, one of the tricky things about all this is that we just can't see it. But it explains the fact, verse 13, that we do indeed face so many trials. And yet, once again, we are not alone and we can withstand in the evil day. So, practically speaking, how does one do this? I've already suggested to you that you must be a person of the Word and a person of prayer. Let me expound on that just a little bit. I hesitate to go there because it sounds a little cliched. Read your Bible, 
and pray. But this is how you take what is true and walk in light of it. Here's what I mean. It is so easy for us to walk through life numbly. We're busy, after all. Life is hard. And after you've been a grown-up for a while, you've been beat up quite a bit. It's easy to grow cynical. It's easy to grow somewhat jaded. It's easy to grow lazy. Most days, frankly, aren't that much different than the one before. So it's easy to just fall into a sense of boredom, to be, to be lulled into sort of a spiritual sleep. And then when things are hard, when days of temptation and trial do come, these evil days that Paul suggests in verse 13, it is easy to just fall apart because we have been lulled into sleep. What I would say to you, however, is that you must be prepared by knowing what is true and by rehearsing what is true. Back in 2014... Somehow, I still can't figure out how this happened. My wife convinced me to run a marathon with her. So here's what it was like. Um, I, was, I was exercising pretty regularly, and she said to me, uh, why don't you run a half marathon with me? And I hate running. Like, I really, really hate running. And I said, no, thank you. I will just continue to go to the gym. And no, she convinced me, whatever, I don't know. So we did it. And so I trained a little bit, and we ran a half marathon together. It wasn't very pleasant. I remember thinking to myself as I was running through German Village that day that um, I could never do a full marathon because this was agonizing. So then we finished, I think this was in May, and uh, she suggests, why don't we do a full marathon? I love my wife very much, and generally speaking, she gets what she wants. And so somehow, again, I can't figure out how this happened, I agreed to this. And so we did. But the thing is, you can't just show up and, and run a marathon. Now, maybe a few of you can because you eat kale all the time and you work out a lot. But, but that was not me. And so we found a training plan, and, and we really stuck to it. And toward the end, as, as you're ramping up before you taper off before the marathon, you are running really long distances. Depending on the training plan, you'll do some runs that are 16, 18, 20 miles long. I remember the day that we did our 20-miler. Our we woke up really early in the morning. It was like, it was like 4 a.m. or whatever, because we wanted to get up before it got light, because... I was going to have a heat stroke. So we're running up and down Cheshire Road and the Glen Road Extension up by the new hospital area up there. And um, we ran 10 miles, and then I thought, man, that was a long way. And we were only halfway done. And so then we ran our next 10 and finished or whatever. Uh, I think maybe we got in a fight that day. I can't remember. We fought quite a bit on our training runs. Um, all my fault. Um, so on an October crisp morning, we showed up for the race, and it was a really great day. It was one of the best things we've ever done together. Um, running through Grandview was agonizing. Um, I almost walked once, um, but I didn't. I kept going. Uh, we finally got to, to the Grandview yard area, and we were within a mile or so of being done, and I remember finally finishing, and she had saved all this energy for the end because she does eat a lot of kale, and it kicked in finally, right? Um, I like kale chips, if that counts. But we made it to the end, and she was trying to beat me, and I don't remember how it ended. I'm sure she beat me by the end by like a millisecond or whatever. And we finished, and some of you were there. Some of you ran that day, and we got pictures together. It was a great day, and I, 
I'm in no shape right now, by the way, to run another marathon. But I remember thinking during the marathon, especially as we kind of ran through campus and were approaching uh, Arlington and so forth, that I was so thankful that we had run a lot. You can't just show up on marathon day and expect to perform well. Perhaps you know where I'm going with this analogy. If we don't prepare well daily, and the way that we walk in the Spirit, the way that we abide in Christ, the one who is the branch, who sustains his, the one who is the vine, who sustains his branches, we won't make it. It sounds all well and good to fight by faith. It sounds all well and good to persevere in faith. But Paul, though perhaps a little bit nebulous here, does call us to, to daily abiding, to daily walking, to, to repetition. The, way, the reason the marathon went relatively well, and by the way, we didn't qualify for anything, but we just ran a good race. The reason we could is because we had tons of reps under our belts. We had put the miles in. We had built muscle strength. From a cardiovascular point of view, we were ready. Mentally, we were ready. Most days, if we're being honest, are mundane. We can be lulled to sleep. The routines of life, the busyness of life. Has there ever been a busier people than, than 21st century Americans? That's our go-to, right? After we get done talking about the weather, what do we say next? We're busy. That's where we go. It has become such a cliche and, frankly, an excuse. But we must be careful, my beloved, because if we are lulled to sleep, if we are tricked in the mundane, then we will not be ready on the evil day or in the evil days. And so each day we must put on God's armor. And again, we'll talk about that more in detail next week. Because the most evil creature that has ever lived is seeking to destroy us. As Peter suggests, he is like a roaring lion who seeks to devour us. He hates you. He hates me with a malevolence which is unmatched. But as John suggests in the fourth chapter of his first epistle, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. The comforter that has been given to us by our Savior is with us. And so we must build ourselves up on our most holy faith knowing that we don't wrestle against things that we see, but against things that we don't. And the only way that we can fight the things that we don't see is by trusting the one who is in us, and who has been given to us by our Savior, who will sustain us and keep us until the end. And so Paul ends this section in verse 13, the beginning of this section, sort of like a unit within the section. Therefore, verse 13, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. What is this evil day? I don't think he just means the apocalypse. You know, like when it's all said and done and depending on your understanding or beliefs about the end times, I, I don't think it's just going to be like some evil day whenever 
you know, somebody wants to put the mark of the beast on you if you believe in such things, or when Jesus returns and the world has gotten really evil before that, depending on what your view might be. I don't just think he means the apocalypse. I don't just think he means, like, the final day when everything's really, really bad. If you were to ask Paul, do we live in the last days now? He would say yes, and that was 2,000 years ago. I think here's the idea. Satan has been wounded. This was promised back in Genesis chapter 3. Satan would wound the offspring of the woman, but the offspring of the woman, who would be Jesus Christ, would crush the head of the serpent. But he didn't do it in one fell swoop. He wounded him mortally. Jesus wounded Satan mortally when he died on the cross and rose from the grave. And yet, he is still at work, seeking to destroy the people of God, to thwart the cause of the gospel. Now, one day, according to Revelation, and despite your views on how it's all going to wrap up, we all do agree on this, Jesus will come one day and completely crush all of his enemies, and it won't be hard. It won't be a real war. But until then, in the in-between, between the time when the mortal wound was dealt and whenever evil is put down entirely, he is like a wounded animal and he's perhaps more dangerous than he's ever been. Animals can be like this. When they've been hurt and get cornered, they, they lash out defensively, seeking to preserve their lives. It's just instinct. And Satan, who was a serpent, or in other places likened to a dragon, is the most evil case of this. He will be put down. But until that day, he will do his dead level best to drag all that he can down with him. So we live in evil days, plural. They come and go. In other words, though we live in an evil age, the evil days for us seem to be intermittent. There are certain days which are harder than others, in other words. There are certain days where our faith is tested more acutely. Certain temptations, certain struggles. There are certain days when your faith is really called into question. Maybe Tuesday, like most days, you're lulled to sleep and you're floating along just kind of making it, just kind of surviving. And then Wednesday comes, and something comes out of the blue, something that you weren't expecting, and your faith is rocked to the core. We've all been there, some of us very recently. Then in the aftermath, after we dust ourselves off and clear away the rubble of our tragic choices, we think to ourselves, how could we have made such a terrible choice? How could we have turned our back on faith? How could we have given in to temptation? Paul, whenever his faith was called into question, when he was arrested, and eventually when he would go to trial and lose his head for his faith, was able to withstand, was able to sustain faith, unlike Peter initially, because daily Paul did exactly what he prescribes here or advises here. 
Daily, he walked in the Spirit. Daily, he trusted the promises of God. Daily, he meditated on the Word of God. Daily, unceasingly, according to Paul, he talked to God so that he would not allow the normal mood of life, the normal atmosphere of life, the normal routines of life to lull him to sleep so that whenever it did get really hard, he would fall apart. Here's what I'm prescribing to you. Don't be lulled to sleep. Don't give in to the routine and the mundane. Don't be tricked into thinking that you live in a safe age because you don't. When it's all said and done, what do we want? And I I know most of you well enough to know what you would say. What What do we want when it's all said and done? We want to make it to the end, having worshipped God faithfully, treasured Him supremely, so that we might hear, well done, good and faithful servant. But that does not come in a vacuum. It does not come if we allow ourselves to be lulled to sleep, if we think that it's all rosy and well and good. My brothers and sisters, it is not. And because we live in an age, not unlike Paul's, where it's easy for us to be bored, it's easy for us to be lulled to sleep, it's easy for us to think that everything is well and good, when the hard days come, we will not stand. But the one who has promised to keep us, the one who has granted us access to his power, the one who pleads his merits before the Father for us right now, the one who is for us, the one who is greater than the one who is against us. We have access to him every single day. Paul was concerned that this church might fall apart. And if we're being honest, it wasn't impossible. This church as strong as it is theologically, as committed as we are to walking together the glory of Jesus, this church could cease to exist. Our faith could fall. Paul is speaking from experience. He knew what it was like to stand against evil and to give his life for the sake of the gospel. He called them to persevere, for they might face the same things he did. I'm not trying to be doomsday here. I don't know how things will be in a year, or five or ten. But I do know that as we look back at the history of the church, Satan has been doing his dead-level best, one who has been dealt this mortal wound one who is seeking to drag others down with him and to discredit Christ and his good news. He is always at work. But like Luther 500 years ago, we look to the one who is our mighty fortress. Let me read some lyrics again from that song. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper He amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. 
For still our ancient foe thus seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Thus ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, the Lord of hosts, his name. From age to age the same, and he must win the battle. The one who made all things, the one who sustains all things, the one who brought us the gospel is on our side. And we are not alone. We have not yet made it to the end. But beloved, let us all make it to the end. Together, together trusting in the one who pleads his merits on our behalf, who will never forsake us. The one who has dealt the mortal blow against his enemy and one day will come and consummate his victory. We are not alone. We need not fear, but we must live soberly. We must know that because the end is not yet here, we have a ways yet to journey. So let us each day look to his promises. Let us each day rehearse his promises in prayer, trusting that though the forces of darkness that we cannot see are arrayed against us, We can trust Him. He will not forsake us. He will not let us go. He will hold us fast. Let not lust lay us low. Let not doubt trip us up. Let not boredom and lethargy lead us to the grave. Instead, may we be building ourselves up together in our most holy faith. And may we walk together in trust in the one who has saved us, is saving us, and one day will complete his salvation for his people. May we walk together for his glory and for our mutual joy. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, this life is hard. If we're being honest.